0: Our scripture reading this morning is taken from the Old Testament book of Exodus, chapter 3, verses 1 through 14. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, and he led the flock to the far side of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight. Why the bush does not burn up? When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this And they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you.
1: Well, I invite you to open your Bibles to that text that Tori just read for us, Exodus 3. And uh, while you're doing that, uh, just in case you're a guest today, I want you to know what we're doing. We're continuing a series that we started last uh, week called Moonwalking with God. Uh, it's a series in which we're, we're trying to fine-tune uh, the art of remembering, you know, remembering specifically who God is and what he's done for us. And we're doing it by uh, repeating, revisiting, retelling, uh, reflecting on Old Testament stories just too good and too important to forget. And uh, if you missed uh, last week the opening of the series, I'd encourage you to go online and listen because it really helps set the context of what we're doing and exactly why we're doing it. Okay? Now... This account of Moses in the burning bush uh, is one familiar to all of us. I think that's a safe assumption. But my guess is that while many of us may know the, the basic gist of the story, uh, some of the important details over time slip from our memories. For example, uh, this is the first time anyone's ever said to God, who are you and what's your name? And we often forget that, but it's true. And in the process of answering the question, uh, God demonstrates how you know he's not just some ambiguous Impersonal, uh, unknowable energy or force, but he is a personal being who wants to be known. He is God with a name. But here's the deal Moses' encounter with God doesn't only reveal his name, it reveals his very nature. And so this story tells us things about God that are pretty important for us to understand and remember, things that that carry practical implications for our our lives today. So what we're going to do is we're going to work our way through the story and try the best that we can to cement um, into our minds a few facts about the nature of God, okay? Starting with verse 1, the first thing that we learn and need to remember is that God is the God of purposeful delays, now, why do I say that? I say it because in verse one we're told that Moses was tending the flock of Jethro. Uh, the Hebrew term for tending it means to feed, it means to watch over, it means to protect. And in its verb form, which we have here, it carries the idea of continuance, of ongoing, you know, ongoing action. And so here's my more literal personal Reike translation, okay? Moses was tending, 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 and tending intending his father-in-law's sheep in other words his life had come to what was essentially a dead end he was going nowhere and it was really a low point for him these weren't even his sheep you know that he was watching they were somebody else's sheep and you know don't get me wrong it's not like it's not like being a sheep herder working for your in-laws is necessarily bad or shameful Uh, it's just that for Moses you know man he it was it was a long way from where he started I mean, keep in mind, Moses was born in Egypt, adopted by by Pharaoh's daughter, raised as royalty, given the best education possible. He was an up-and-coming leader in the most powerful nation on earth at the time. He had rich, influential friends, few enemies. But he went, when he learned the truth of his adoption, you know, that he was born, actually born an Israelite, and he realized that his own people were being oppressed he wanted to help them. He wanted to do something. He wanted to serve as sort of a lobbyist, a lobbyist for their cause. But one day when he saw an Egyptian uh, beating an Israelite slave, man, he freaked out. He lost it in a fit of rage. He killed the Egyptian, buried him in the sand. Well, Pharaoh finds out, and then Moses uh, has to run for his life into the desert. According to the New Testament book of Acts, this all went down when Moses was 40 years old. And so with little warning... This guy in his prime who had it all, I mean, his life takes a serious detour from where he thought it was going. I mean, he lost everything. He lost, he lost his family. He lost his country. He lost his, um, his career. He lost his social status. He lost uh, his political influence, his moral integrity. He lost his financial capital. He lost everything he owned. All of it was gone. And he ends up here in Exodus 3, 40 years later, A failed, forgotten, 80-year-old guy, eking out a living, tending his father-in-law's sheep in a desolate, out-of-the-way corner, northeast corner of the Arabian Peninsula in Midian. You know, it's strange how life works sometimes, the paradox of it. Um, And not only for Moses, but for all of us. I mean, rarely does life turn out the way we think it's going to. Sometimes what we think is best turns out worse. Sometimes what seems the worst turns out to be the best. And with Moses, I mean you think that if God wanted to use this guy for something special, he'd have done it 4 decades earlier, you know, when Moses was was on the top of his game, when he was in his prime. But instead God waits. You know, he waits until Moses is completely stripped of everything that you and I would consider necessary for success in leadership. When Moses had no power, He had had no influence, no money, no resources, no strength, no confidence, no illusions of grandeur. And that's when God says, okay, now you're ready. Now I want to use you to go and free my people. I'm sending you now. What was Moses' response? It was just what you would expect. He said, this is crazy. This is nuts. I can't do it. In verse 11, he says, who am I? Who am I? I'm a nobody. And it's here, in Moses' response, and really his overall experience, that we see illustrated two realities of life. The first reality is this. We're never truly any use to God until we come to the end of ourselves. Until we, you know, until we reach a point of genuine humility where we recognize our own faults and our own failures and our own, our own weaknesses, our own frailty, our own limitations, until we get to, to that place where we know that we have nothing to offer God, nothing in and of ourselves to impress him or merit his attention or his affection, until we see ourselves as truly helpless and throw ourselves on the mercy of God alone, he can't really use us. And if you think about it, you can't even be a Christian until you come to the end of yourself. Because to have a right relationship with God requires humble acknowledgement of, of sin and brokenness and the acknowledgement of a need for forgiveness. And it wasn't until Moses got to that place, it wasn't until he was willing to confess, I'm a nobody, that God could use him. The second reality of life is this, that God's timing is almost never the same as ours, almost never the same as ours. And that is, that is frustrating but it's true. And yet all of God's delays are brilliantly purposeful. A great example of this is in the new Testament. One day Jesus was um, approached by a religious leader. His name was Jairus and Jairus had a 12 year old daughter who was dying. And he goes to Jesus and he says, would you please come quickly? My daughter is dying. Would you come and heal her? And Jesus said, yes, I will. And, And so they headed out, but on the way, uh, they slow down because Jesus meets this other sick woman and he interacts with her and he ends up healing her. But in the midst of the delay, uh, the little girl dies and they get news that she's, she's gone. And um, her dad, Jairus, man, he just, you know, he just loses it and he's, he's, he's upset, he's, he's, he's crying. And Jesus looks at him and he says, don't be afraid, just believe, trust me. And so they went on to Jairus' house and Jesus went and he performed the miraculous. He raised the girl uh, from the dead and the people there were just, you know, they were dumbfounded by what they had seen. And uh, and so here you have Jesus able to to heal and help and raise this this little girl to life. He was also able to heal this woman on the way who also became a follower of his. And so this miraculous event and the record of it in Mark chapter 5 has echoed down through history to inspire millions of people. All because Jesus said, um, my timing isn't always your timing, but it is always brilliantly purposeful. What kind of delays have you faced in life that have been really frustrating? Or maybe you're facing some now. You know, how are you dealing with those? Here's, Here's my Ray K application for this in life, no matter who you are. No matter where you're experiencing delays or frustration, whether it's in a relationship, or at school, or in your, you know, in, your, in your career life, whatever, in life when things aren't working uh, according to your schedule, don't freak out. Trust God. He knows what He's doing. He's God, we're not. And He's a God of brilliant, purposeful delays. He's also the God of fiery reality. When you think of Moses' experience, I mean, I don't know about you, but for me, when I think of the, think of the experience, I wonder to myself, what's up with the fire bush? You know what I mean? What's up with the whole fire bush? And um, and I I know God had His reasons for it, and I'm sure there are reasons that I'm never going to figure out or fully understand. But as best as I as I can tell, you know, up until this point, Moses was a pretty religious guy. He was raised as an Egyptian, and so he uh, he would have believed in many gods. The Egyptians were polytheistic. And then after learning that he was an Israelite, he would have believed in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Believed in him, but never encountered him. And so to get Moses' attention, God does something unique. As a, as a way of introduction, Not unlike the, 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 the false deities of the Egyptian, this the one true God, as way of introduction to Moses, uses fire to get his attention. Why fire? Again, the best that I could tell... Uh, is because fire, fire overwhelms the human senses. You know what I mean? I mean, fire is something that you see. You see its brightness. You feel it. It's heat. You smell its smoke. You, you hear it roar and crackle. You don't just believe in fire. You experience fire. And for years, you know, Moses believed in God, but now he encounters him uh, experientially and what happens. So well, his life gets changed forever, right? His story gets altered. And that's what happens to people who encounter God. In fact, the scriptures teach that radical life change is how you can tell uh, if you have moved from a mere mental ascent of God to genuine faith in God. Faith, true faith is both objective and subjective. It's rational and experiential. It's, it's both what you believe and what you do. You understand. You know, it's one thing to say you believe in God. A whole lot of people say that. It's one thing to say you believe in God. It's another thing to have that belief change your life. It's one thing to say that you believe in Jesus. A lot of people in the church say that. It's another thing to have that belief revolutionize the way you think, the way you see the world, the way you live every single day. 17th century French mathematician, physicist, and philosopher, Blaise Pascal, was a guy who believed in God, he wrote about God, he theorized about God, but it wasn't until he had an experience that his life was changed by God. So impactful was this experience that Pascal wrote about it on a piece of cloth and had it sewn into the lining of his coat uh, so that he would always have it with him, he could always be reminded of it, and he figured that when he died, people would open the coat and there it would be and would tell his story. In describing his experience, Pascal alludes to one passage of Scripture. You know which one it is? This one we're looking at this morning. The story has become, his experience has become known as Pascal's Night of Fire. And this is what he wrote in his coat. The year of grace, 1654, Monday the 23rd of November, from about half past 10 in the evening until half past midnight, fire, fire. God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, not of philosophers and scholars, certainty, certainty, heartfelt joy, peace, God of Jesus Christ, my God and your God, the world forgotten and everything except God. He can only be found by the ways taught in the Gospels, joy, 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 tears of joy, and this is life eternal, that they might know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent, total submission to Jesus. I will not forget your word, amen. Now obviously... You know, not everybody gets to have fiery, dramatic encounters like, like Moses or like Pascal. I certainly didn't. But here's the deal. When you go from just a mental belief in God to truly knowing and experiencing his, his reality, his love, his power, your life gets changed in undeniable ways. It does. It, it always happens. Always. So the question then becomes, has it happened to you? Has it happened to you? Life change is the product of encountering God and knowing God. And true faith in the way that's lived out every day is a demonstration that it's happened. There's something else about God's nature that Moses' encounter revealed. And that is that God is the God of absolute sufficiency. Verse 2 tells us that when Moses saw that this bush was on fire and wasn't burning up. He says, I'm going to check this out. This is strange stuff. Now, obviously, like all of us, Moses knew that fire is naturally dependent on fuel. You know, it can only exist as long as combustible, a combustible source of fuel is available to it. No fire, no no fuel, no fire. But this fire was strange. You know, it was beyond nature in that it didn't need fuel. It, It wasn't consuming the bush. The existence of this fire depended on nothing. It had its own infinite source of being and power, and therefore the fire depicts and illustrates God's answer to Moses, to his question in verse 13. Moses says, okay, God, so you want me to go to Egypt, and you want me to help free your people, and you want me to go and tell them that you sent me. Well, they're going to ask, you who? I mean, who, who is this God? Who sent you? What's his name? What do I tell them? And God says "He says to Moses, this is what you tell the Israelites. Tell them, I am has sent me to you. I am. Now, the meaning of this name has been something people have debated and wrestled with for, the cent- for centuries, primarily because <clears throat> the translation is, 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 a, is a bit challenging. The word that God gives Moses is the Hebrew verb to be. So one, one legitimate way to translate it, Is to say, God says, tell them, I am has sent you. I am. Or you could also translate it, I be. You know, I be who I be has sent you. That would be a a good translation. And yet another way you can translate it is this way. Being itself. Tell them being itself has sent you. And the more I thought about it, the more I realized that the best way to interpret what God's name ultimately means is to look back at the fire. Look at the fire that need, needed no fuel. Because understand, this is what God was saying. He was saying by way of the fire, by way of his name, he says, Moses, I have no beginning and no end. I am independent, self-existing, self-sufficient. There was never a time in which it could be said, he will be. There will never be a time in which it will be said, he was. I am, I be <laughs> forever existing. There is absolutely, God says, there's absolutely no other power or being that has caused or created me. I am the source of all power, all life, all being. Now, maybe you didn't know this. This is what theologians refer to as the aseity of God. Theologians like big words. So uh, it comes from a Latin word, means, uh, means of oneself, the aseity of God. But basically what we're talking about is that God eternally self-exists and depends on nothing while well, everything depends on him, and he is absolutely sufficient for all things. Now, that's some pretty deep theology. I mean, it really is. And so we hear that, and it's easy for us to say, you know, so what? So what does this mean for me in my life? Well, you know, to help his, his, his followers understand what it means, Jesus one day explained and applied, really, basically, this truth of God's aseity, and he did it in very simple, practical terms. He put it this way to his followers Jesus said, I am, and that is a reference to deity. <clears throat> he says, I am the vine. You are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. In short, Jesus was saying to be a follower, you know, to to have true faith means that you come to a place where you know that as much as you have worked for the things that you own, as much effort as you've put into establishing the life that you have, the fact is you've done it all with the interests and the desires God gave you. You've done it with the talents and the abilities he has given you with the opportunity he's placed before you, with the strength and health he has given you, with the mind he has given you, with the humor that he's, uh, sense of humor he's given you, with the personality he's given you. Ultimately, you've done everything and achieved everything and have everything with the very existence God has given you. Therefore, everything you are, everything you have is a gift from God, the great I am, being itself. And apart from him, you can do nothing. I can do nothing. I don't know how you feel about that, but for me, you know, once I get over the humbling insult of it all, uh, you know, realizing that my life and existence is ultimately dependent on God is sort of a freeing thing. I mean, it is. It takes the pressure off in so many ways. It reduces the stress of me arrogantly thinking that I'm in control of everything. 16th century uh, theologian Martin Luther, he's a reformer too, Luther had a friend named Philip Melanchthon, and Philip was also a theologian. Philip Melanchthon, he was a worrywart, totally stressed out all the time, just worried all the time about everything. And so whenever he'd get all freaked out about something, <clears throat> we're told that um, history says that Martin Luther would look at him and say, let Philip cease to rule the world. <laughs> and what was, what was Luther doing when he said that? Well, what he was doing was applying, in very practical terminology, theological truth in order to help a friend... Uh, and his anxiety. He was essentially saying, Phil, relax. Are you so arrogant to think that you're keeping the world going? You know, uh, Are you the, the supreme ruler of the universe who controls the outcome of history? Humble out, man. Relax. Phil, relax. There are times when I need people to say, let Ray cease to rule the world. Last week was an example of that. Um, on a seven o'clock on Sunday morning. Uh, pastors are haunted by the fear of Saturday night snowstorms and power outages. Okay. And uh, last uh, Sunday, I got a call just a little after seven o'clock from uh, our, our, uh, our music team. Uh, a, a, a tree over on Ryford road that had been damaged by the storm fell across power lines, knocked out all the power in the area, including the power here in our facility. And uh, so we had, a an hour, a little under an hour before the eight thirty 30 service was supposed to be starting. And so I rushed over here and it's all dark. And we, what are we going to do? What? And I start freaking out. I'm like, I don't know what we're going to do. Oh, uh, you know, Steve King was gone that day. And, and, uh, and I'm just, I'm bugging out. Finally, Dave Davis, our executive pastor pulls up and he comes in and he's assessing things. He's cool as a cucumber. You know, and I'm, I'm, I'm bugging out and, and I'm going, I go, I can he says, what do you want to do? I go, I don't know. I don't know. We're going to have to cancel because we're saying we're going to get any power for hours. He goes, he goes, I've got to cancel. We got to cancel. He goes, come here. He pulls me outside. We're all alone. He goes, you can't cancel church. <laughs> 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 and I wanted to say, well, of course you can't because the church is people. But I was too bugged out at that point. I'm like, what we, "Then what are we going to do? He goes, look, Don't sweat it. It's all right. God's in control. We'll just bring out some chairs. We'll put them out on the patio. We'll have the 830 service out here. If we get the power back on, we'll go in for the second two. If not, we'll we'll take the second one out here. If we get back in this third, fine. He goes, it'll be all right. It'll be cool. You know, let race cease to rule the world. (laughs) It all worked out. Um, And that experience got me thinking how for many of us, and especially me, But for many of us, it's only through storms and chaos that we finally come to grips with our lack of control. You know what I mean? More often than not, it's in the midst of pain and suffering where we finally admit to our frailty, and we finally admit to our helplessness, and we're left with no other options but to trust God and depend on Him. But what concerns me about that is, you know, what if we haven't, Learned, or what if I haven't learned to depend on God in a little crisis like losing some power? What if I freak out with that? Because if I'm, if I'm losing it in, in, these little cri- in a little crisis, and uh, if I can't deal with that, I may not be able to do it in a big crisis when it comes. John Newton was an 18th century pastor, hymn writer, famous hymn writer, theologian. And um, one day he wrote a, a letter to a friend and he was writing about suffering. He said some really fascinating things in this letter. I'm just going to give you a couple things he said. But he wrote this letter on October 15th, 1774. He said, you know, I think the greatness of trials is to be estimated by the impression they make upon our spirits. It is needful that we should know we have no sufficiency in ourselves. And in order to know it, we must feel it. And then he goes on and he says, It requires the same grace to bear with a right spirit a cross word as a cross injury or the breaking of a china plate as the death of an only son. What was Newton saying? He was saying that in so many respects, like it or not, we need trials. We need difficulties. We need chaos. We need suffering to help us come to grips with our lack of control and to move us toward trusting God for his power and his sufficiency. But if you freak out when you break a piece of china, which is just a little trial, a little deal, what are you going to do when the real tragedy strikes? Unless we learn to depend on God in the little things, we may not be ready to do so when the big things come. In short, I'm looking at it this way. Without God, you and I can do nothing. With God, we can deal with anything. Okay, so we got to keep moving. Um, What else does Moses' encounter with God tell us about God? Well, it tells us he is the God of mysterious nearness. I mean, what is the greatest mystery in the story? Uh, A lot of people, their first inclination would be to say, well, it's this bush that doesn't burn up. That's kind of strange. That's weird. But I would suggest it's something else. More specifically, uh, it's someone else. Now, you think about this. When Moses approaches the bush and he realizes who it is that's talking to him, verse 6 says, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Well, I I thought he was looking at a bush, right? Well, he was looking at a bush. But what we often forget about the story is that in the opening statement of verse 2, we're told this, there the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within the bush. The angel of the Lord. Who is that? As many of you know, there are other angels mentioned in scripture, all of whom are created beings, created to do uh, the the will of God, to, to be messengers for God, Michael, Gabriel. But biblical scholars agree that whenever this particular being referred to as the angel of the Lord appears in the Old Testament, he seems different from God, yet still is God. He speaks for God, but also speaks as God. And that's true in this this case with Moses. And so herein lies the mystery. Who is the angel of the Lord? And I can't possibly address or answer even all the questions that this mystery generates, but we have a pretty good idea who it is. Christian theologian and author, uh, Dr. Alec Motier, in his commentary on Exodus, he explains it this way. says, the angel of the Lord is a merciful accommodation of God, whereby the Lord can be present among sinful people without his presence consuming them. The angel suffers no reduction or adjustment of his full deity, yet he is that mode of deity whereby the holy God can keep company with sinners. Theologians like big words and complicated sentences, okay? <laughs> Here, here's the simplicity of it. Here's my Reiki translation. The angel is somebody special, you know? The angel is somebody important. And there's only one other person in Scripture who is identical with and yet distinct from God. One who, without abandoning the full essence and prerogatives of deity or diminishing divine perfection or holiness, is able to hang out with broken, sinful people. One who, while affirming the wrath of God, is yet himself the supreme expression of God's uh, outreaching and unconditional love and mercy. The angel of the Lord can only be appreciated when we understand him to be a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. Jesus is the angel of the Lord, the God of mysterious nearness. And when he says to Moses, I have seen the suffering of my people, so what? He says, so I have come down. I have come down to rescue them. It sounds remarkably similar to what Jesus said to the disciples when he said, I have come down. I have come down from heaven to rescue, to set the captives free. And in case you think it's pushing the interpretation to suggest that this is Jesus appearing here. Keep in mind how Jesus one day uh, astounded a group of people when he said this to them. He said, I tell you the truth, before Abraham was born, I am. And it was that claim to eternal deity that made the Jewish religious leaders want to kill him. And that's because religion... Doesn't understand the nearness of God. Religion says God is too out there, God is too otherworldly. God, God is He's not going to come near to us. And so all religions agree that, that humanity has an evil sin and suffering problem. And the way to overcome the problem and get to God is by way of keeping rules and rituals and codes and and, and doing good works. Religion is all about how man can get to God, and how man can reach God. And so in this case, Christianity is not a religion. Because biblical Christianity asserts that human beings, no matter how hard they try or how bad they really want to do it, they cannot rescue themselves. They cannot reach God. We cannot ascend to God's level because his level is too high. Therefore, God must come down to us. God must come to rescue us. And he has. And as mysterious as that is, it's the explanation Moses got. It's the explanation Peter and John and the rest of the disciples received. Deity has come to save us, come to us to rescue us. Jesus is the angel of the Lord who speaks from Moses to Moses from within the bush and, 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 and calls him to be part of God's rescue mission, which leads me to the final question. The final thing this story reveals about God, and that is namely, he is the God of amazing grace. I mean, who was Moses that he deserved such an opportunity or invitation? I mean, he wasn't just some 80-year-old guy who who had innocently lost everything and suddenly found himself in nowheresville Midian taking care of somebody else's sheep. He was a murderer, a guy who in an act of, of sinful rage and violence took the life of another human being and then tried to cover it up. And yet God says to him, I want you. Even Moses was confused by that. Because Moses says, who am I? Who am I that you should want me? I'm a messed up, twisted, sinful nobody. Who am I? But see, it it wasn't about who Moses was. It was all and only about who God is. The God of grace. The God who invites broken men and women, not into religion, but into relationship. And anyone, anyone, even a, a polytheistic runaway murderer, anyone who was willing to humble themselves before the great I am can and will experience his grace. And make no mistake about it, grace was the basis of Moses' relationship with God. It's what compelled him to obey. It's what inspired him to give his life in service to God. Because love awakens love. Love inspires love. And here in Exodus 3, when Moses experiences this this love and grace of God, his story takes another dramatic turn. And the rest, as they say, is history. You know, sometimes even with with very familiar stories, we tend to remember the big picture but forget the details. And in this particular case with Moses, the details, man, the details are critical because they give us insight to the very nature of being itself, to the great I am, the God of purposeful delays, fiery reality, absolute sufficiency, mysterious nearness, and amazing grace. And his name is to be remembered. And his name is to be honored. And his name is most worthy to be praised. Let's pray. Our Father, I I pray this morning that as we allow this story to sink into our minds, into our hearts, into our spirits, that you would teach us not just about an event of history, but you would teach us about you, about who you are, the creator of all things, the great I am, being itself. You are God. And Father, in the midst of life, as we experience frustrations and delays that we cannot explain, may we trust you knowing that you you know what you're doing. And as we wrestle with um, stress and anxiety, believing in moment, at moments that we control the universe, I pray that you would help us to, um, in true humility, recognize that we are just frail, helpless beings. And we need you. Without you, we are nothing. Without you, we have nothing. I pray, that, I pray that we would gain a deeper understanding of that. And I pray, God, that we would be grateful to you for your willingness to come to us because we could not reach you. And that through Jesus, you have, you have come to, to rescue, to forgive, to offer and demonstrate true love and grace. I pray, Lord, that... Um, we would respond to that grace. We would embrace it. We would embrace you and, and that we would see our lives changed because that's what grace does. It changes people. It changes us. And so today we worship you, our God, the great I am. We proclaim your name and we love you in Jesus' name. Amen.